The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn to Philippians. I've, I've preached a Mother's Day sermon for 20 years at this church. Today, I just happened to land on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where I'm going through the book of Philippians. And to me, this is the perfect text for mothers to know and understand because it reveals to us the kind of God a mother really needs, the way he is described here. So if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, and let me read beginning, let me read the whole text beginning in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. We begin there. Paul writes, have this attitude or mindset, way of looking at things, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, and the, the word form means the reality. He was, he was God to the very core, is the idea. The morphe of God. He did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken hold of and, and seized as an opportunity. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This text is not teaching that angels have knees. It's saying that all are going to bow in recognition and obedience to him, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that amazing? It's going to glorify God the Father when every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Um, this, is, this is one of those passages, when I started preaching, I would never touch a passage like this because it's one of the greatest passages in all about it. It's a panoramic. It's amazing, this, this, what this just said about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so lofty that you never feel like you can give, do it just do uh, what you really should do with it because it's it's an absolutely glorious glorious passage of scripture speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ the reason I say it's the kind of God a mother needs is because this is just what happens to a woman when she becomes a mother all of a sudden I think she comes to realize that this child has to come first she has to actually put her needs second to the needs of this child and that's an awesome thought, isn't it? That this child needs you. He needs you to make him or her first priority. And this is what Jesus did. That Jesus took on this role, the, the Son, the eternal Son of God, who is as much God as the Father is God, is the one who came into the world and humbled himself so that he could save us from our sins so that he could save us in the fullest sense of that word of making us whole and complete and bringing us into the very presence of God where we're going to live for eternity because that's what we were created for. But because of the fall, we were alienated from God and far from him. 
And so Jesus came and he was willing to put the needs of a lost world ahead of his own desires. You remember what he said in the garden of Gethsemane when he said to the father, is there any way that this cup could pass from me? And then he stopped. The cup he's talking about is mentioned several times in the gospels as we go towards the cross. And the cup was the the wrath of God. He was going to drink, drink the wrath of God for us on the cross. And then he, when he's praying that, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? He stops himself and he says, but not my will, my desire be done, but yours. This is an amazing passage. It's one of those, there's theological implications here that have puzzled the best minds that have studied the Bible for centuries. And that is, how is it that the son could have a different desire than the father? Because he was a man, he had taken on a real human nature. And in his human nature, he did not want to. He did not desire to experience being separated from the father. And if you remember what the father did while he was on the cross was he pulls the shade for three hours. No one could see a thing as Jesus hung on the cross. It says they couldn't even move around because it was total darkness. It was almost like God pulls a shade and says, I don't want you to watch what I'm going to do. As he makes his son an offering for sin. And so when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and it says, he, the father, made him the son who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It strikes us, would God desire that for me? See, most Christians, they think, I can understand that because I know he loves all these people. What when you bring it down to yourself? He loves you that much? That's exactly what the Bible says. Do you deserve it? Sorry to tell you this, no, you don't deserve it. But that's what he's done. And, um, and so he put our needs before his and our desires before his in this sense. There's a couple of verses I want to bring to your attention. One of them is Psalm 27.4 where David says this, Only one thing I have asked from the Lord and that I shall seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David says the one thing, my one priority in life is I want to experience the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. Now the presence of God was manifest in the temple in a very special way. And some of you have read through the Old Testament and you know in Ezekiel, it gives you a scene there where Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord departing the temple. He actually watched it happen as the glory of the Lord left the temple. It was because of the sin of Israel and they were in Babylonian captivity. But when David says this, he's talking about entering into the temple and experiencing the manifest presence of God. And you say, well, that's, that'd be neat to live in the Old Testament. Well, let me tell you something. God has done things for you as new covenant believers that the old covenant believers can't even, couldn't even imagine. That is, he has brought you into a relationship with him in which you are able to experience the manifest presence of God on a regular basis. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to see lights. It means that you're going to experience the reality of Christ being right there and you being in his presence. 
In the Old Testament tells us that we ought to go into our closet. Now, the idea of a closet, it's, a contain, it's an area that's closed off from everything else. And the point is, is that you need to be alone with the Lord every day. There needs to be a period of time when you get alone with the Lord Jesus Christ and you actually desire to experience the presence of the living Christ who died for you, who put your needs before his own desires and died on the cross on your behalf. It's, it's the most wonderful part of the Christian life is experiencing the reality of the presence of God. The, as Steve Fernandes called it, the felt presence of God. In Isaiah 49, Paul writes, I probably should never read this on Mother's Day. You know the, the big complaint about Mother's Day in evangelical churches? It's this, that men say, on Mother's Day, all you do is build up mothers. You keep talking about how wonderful they are, how great they are, how precious they are. And then on Father's Day, you beat us to a pulp. You tell us everything we're doing wrong and why we fail so miserably. Well, I hope that's not true. But we'll see when Father's Day comes. <laughs> but listen to this, Psalm 49, I mean Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? And God says through Isaiah, even these may forget. We've seen that happen, haven't we? It's an outrageous thing when you see a mother who literally forgets her and stops having compassion on the son of her womb. And so God says, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. I will not forget you. Imagine that. He says he's comparing his love with a mother's love for a child. And remember, Paul, the Apostle Paul does this in First Thessalonians. He he uh, likens his relationship with the Thessalonians of a father and a son and a mother and her child. And with a father and a son, he's talking about giving them direction and leadership and caring about their development. And with a mother, he's talking about her tender love. The earliest memory I have in life, I had to be four years old because I hadn't started school yet. We lived in an apartment house in Oakland. I still remember this. It's the earliest memory I have. It could be that I've seen this in a movie or something, but I think this, this really happened to me. And I remember that uh, my mom wanted to teach me how to make a bed. And I know that sounds ridiculous. You could make a four-year-old make a bed. Our uh, 50-year-old son doesn't know how to make a bed. And their dad doesn't know how to make a bed either. <laughs> but uh, she was showing me how to make a bed. And as she was giving me instructions, I was on the other side of the bed, and she was tucking everything in, telling me how to tuck it in. And then she started singing a song that she wanted me to know. It was, uh, Jesus Loves Me. Oh, no, Oh, How I Love Jesus. That was the first song she ever taught me. Oh, How I Love Jesus. And I still remember the line, because... He first loved me. And that was her cue. She told me how Jesus had first loved me. How he had come into the world and took my place and suffered the penalty that was due me so that I could be saved and forgiven and brought into the family of God. That's my earliest memory. So do I highly regard my mom? Absolutely. She was one of the most wonderful women I've ever known. 
She loved the Lord Jesus Christ and she would talk to anybody about the Lord. And um, so I think that mothers are precious. (laughs) Not perfect, but precious. And so God says, but my love's greater than that. In the day of Saul of Tarsus, in fact, listen to this passage. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 5. Paul, Paul is writing this. For even if there are so-called gods, little g, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, small g, and many lords. That is, there are many things that people count as God and Lord in their life. They bow to certain things. They acknowledge things to be the most important thing in their life that, are not, that is not the God of the universe. Well, in the day of Saul of Tarsus, before he became a Christian, the world had many gods and many lords. The same is true today. All you have to do is talk to somebody for, if you have a a real conversation for 30 minutes, you, you can tell pretty quickly what a person's God is, what their Lord is. But Saul knew there was only one true God as a Jew, one true and living God, and he was the only one who could legitimately claim the title Lord Yahweh. The one who had life in himself. And because he was a Shemite Pharisee, one of the most stringent of Pharisees, his life's work was to purge Israel from false gods and to inflict strict judgment on the Jews who dared to introduce worship of any god, including the Caesar because the leader of Rome demanded to be considered a god. In fact, he used the titles of God, Lord and Savior. He worked and prayed for the inbreaking of God to set his people free from the rule and influence of this pagan group, the Romans. And he wanted to exalt, he wanted Israel to be exalted in their worship of the true and living God, the God that they called Yahweh. Because Saul had this attitude, he thought Christians were idolaters. And here's why. Because they begin to claim that Jesus, Jesus, the Nazarene. You know, it's like uh, Larry who lives in Knightson. He is the son of God. He's the eternal God. That infuriated him. And he made it his life's goal to stamp out Christians. This is before he became one. What he knew to be true about Jesus leaves him no choice. And he found out about who Jesus really was by encountering him personally. And he's the one who wrote these words. In fact, let me read this again to you because you can't hear this too much. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be seized and used for his own benefit. And being made in the likeness of men, he empties himself and he takes on the form of a bondservant. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. And you have to understand the impact of that. That was the worst kind of death you could ever imagine. It was a horrendous death. It was a death that no one would have ever thought you could use a cross as an emblem of the worship of the true God. In fact, it wasn't until everybody who had died off who had ever seen a crucifixion 
After all of them had died off, then the cross among Christians became a symbol, an emblem. People would, rehand, would wear them around their necks and so forth. But before that, it would be like, as they say, hanging an electric chair on, your, on, a, on a little chain and put it around your neck. He goes on, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What he means by that isn't uh, simply that he has a particular name, but it's the word name means the person revealed. The person revealed. And his name is Jesus. His human name is Jesus. And he was given that name when he was born. And the angel told Mary and Joseph that they should name him Jesus. And Jesus means the Lord's salvation. God has one plan for saving people. There is no other plan. There's only one plan. And that plan is that his son would come into the world and die for sinners, be raised from the dead. And every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Remember the Philippian jailer? Later on in this book, the Philippian jailer is going to um, ask Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, believing has a lot of significance to it, and you have to understand what it means. You, you know, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ isn't like uh, believing in Santa Claus. It's putting your trust in him. It's coming to rest all of your faith upon him. And he says that he gave him this name so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is all the angels who in the Old Testament cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Like in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And guess what? You get to John 9 and it tells us that was the son. That was the pre-incarnate Jesus. He's the one who receives all the glory. That's the Father's desire, that we glorify the Son. And not only that, but that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that something? It's gonna, it glorifies God the Father for us to confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, that he is Lord. This is a notoriously complex passage. I used to never like to preach passages like this because I heard guys preach them and they did so much better than I could ever, ever, ever think about doing that I tried to stay away from these kind and get the simple little texts that maybe you had never heard anybody preach on. But let's begin in this, at the end of this passage in verses 10 and 11. Notice what it says. So that, for this purpose, that the name of of in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage is a quotation from Isaiah. It's in a section of Isaiah that has a unique uh, feature about it. It's a monotheistic text. You know, everybody, you always hear this on the news. There are three monotheistic religions. There's Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. All that means is monotheism means there's one God. And this is a text in the Old Testament where the emphasis is on the fact that there is one and only one true God. There are not many gods. 
In fact, God makes fun of those who cut down a tree and with half the tree they burn on the fire to warm themselves. With the other half of the tree they make an idol and bow down to it. And God, God has a great time making fun of those kind of things about worshiping an idol that's inanimate, that can't move, it can't do anything for you whatsoever, and you count it to be God? Well, it's in this text, this monotheistic text, where what is being emphasized that there's only one true God, that he quotes this passage, but now he attributes it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And without confusing you, the Bible teaches that there are three persons who are God, but there's one God. It isn't, he's three in a different way than he's one. We're not saying he's three, oh, but he's also one. We're saying he is three in one way, he's, he's one in another. There's only one God, but there are three persons in this Godhead that have the same nature. And one of those persons came into the world and became one of us, took on our humanity and walked among us. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but during the life of Jesus, as he's walking around the Sea of Galilee, what they don't know that they're seeing, this man in sandals walking on these dusty roads, they don't understand that what they're seeing is the Shekinah of God, which means the manifest presence of God. In the Old Testament, remember Israel, the Jews were taken out of Egyptian bondage and they went into the desert for 40 years And the way that God would lead them was by his Shekinah glory. That is, when they were to move, the Shekinah would move. Pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. When Jesus was here, and he was, looked like an average Jewish man, probably five foot seven. And uh, he's walking around on these roads. And they don't have a clue that this is the Shekinah glory of God in the person of Jesus. Now, once in a while, he would pull back the veil and they could see. Sometimes it was through his, the actions that he did what he, when he raised the dead, healed the sick, cast out demons. Other times it was the words that he spoke. One time on the Mount of Transfiguration, he physically removed the veil so that they could see his glory. The physical manifestation of his glory. You remember that account? When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and his three of his, his disciples were there, and here comes Moses and Elijah who shows up. And it says that Jesus was glorified in their, right there before them. They saw him in his glory. And Moses and Elijah, Moses the leader, the one who represents the, the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. So the law and the prophets, that was a, the, was a expression that spoke of the Old Testament scriptures that God had given to his peace and people. So here they are, Moses and Elijah. And you remember what happened. The apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, Peter, said, you know, we should build three little temples here. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And God breaks in. And from heaven, he says in a loud voice, this is my son. This is the son of my love. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
everything that had ever been said through Moses or the prophets, through the law of the prophets, you heard this morning in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is God's final and ultimate revelation of himself. He sent his son into the world so that we could come to know him as he really is. So when I say that this is the kind of God a mother needs, this is the kind of God that God is. Because Jesus was showing him, showing us rather, by his life, by his actions, by what he did, by going to the cross, by humbling himself to the point of allowing them to treat him worse than simply a criminal, but a slave and a criminal. Only slaves and aliens would ever be crucified. A Roman citizen would never be crucified. But Jesus came to show us what God was really like. So when we see Jesus described in this passage, what he's doing for us, he's describing the true and living God. This is what he's really like. This is just an amazing uh, a statement as he quotes from Isaiah 40 through 55. It's one section in, that's included Isaiah 53. You all know Isaiah 53. Well, in that whole section, he is declaring the uniqueness of God, and at the same time, he reveals the truth of who the Son of God is. In Isaiah 45, 23, God says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. That's what we're going to do when we see Jesus exalted. Because he's the perfect picture of the Father. That's why the first of Hebrews chapter 1 is so wonderful. It tells us this is why God sent the Son. This is the first and primary reason. He sent him to reveal himself. And to reveal himself, he had to provide salvation. This is who he really is. To be loved by God is the most amazing, amazing experience that you could possibly have of being aware of that love that he has manifested towards us in Christ Jesus. And so Paul here is declaring that this one God has shared his glory with Jesus. And how can this be? This is why we read the Bible to discover how could this possibly be? How could Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, how could he be the eternal God? How could he be as much God as God the Father is God? And that's why we dig into the scriptures to try to discover that. But the answer really is found here in the first half of this poem. Here's what Paul is saying in verses 5 through 8. And here's what Paul is saying. Jesus was truly in the form of God, which means that he was equal with God. Being in the form of God means that he truly manifested what he was in the deepest level of who he was. He is God. But he did not regard this equality as something to exploit. That's what it means. He didn't think it was robbery. Uh, you'll get different translations on this section. You have to be careful of those. Literally, this word means to seize, like seize an opportunity or exploit the situation. You know, you know people that they always, they always uh, take the best advantage of something. He says he didn't see being equal with God something to exploit. 
He had to humble himself. He had to take on our humanity in order to come and save us. That's the only way it could happen. So instead, Paul says he offered the true interpretation of what it meant to be equal with God. He became a human, and he died under the weight of sin of the world, obedient to the divine saving plan of God. And so when we read in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Astounding. That before the foundation of the world, which means the beginning of time, when he first spoke everything into existence, he had already set his love on you who are believers. He's already had already set his love on you. And then sometime in history, maybe a long time ago like me or maybe a short time ago like somebody else, you came to rest your faith in Christ and you began to experience the salvation that he had planned to give you from all eternity. And you began to live out this glorious gift of God. Because you see, God loves even better than mothers. And that's very difficult. It's difficult to outdo mothers in their love for their children. I, I got to tell you, sometimes I, I watch in wonder because how do you do that? How do you always put their needs before your own? How do you do that? This is what Jesus did. He's been, he's been exalted because of it. And given the name, we don't... We don't know if he's talking about the name Jesus or the name Yahweh in the eyes of men. They had come to see him as Lord because he did what only God can do. You remember that text in Romans 8 when Paul says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh. The flesh is that part of you, that's what you were in your fallen state. We, because of our fallenness, God calls our humanity flesh. And so in Romans 8, he says, what, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did what the law could not do. Have you ever noticed this in raising children, that you can put all the rules on the refrigerator and say, this is what you must do and must not do, and still they can violate those rules? I should have everybody who's ever violated one of those rules to stand, but you would all have to stand, right? What is, what is the deal? If you know that, you know that God is the all-wise God and the, the, the commandments he gives us, you, we know that that is the right and best thing to do. Why do we disobey? Why is that? Well, that's the reason the law could not declare us righteous. Because of the flesh. You know what the flesh is. I, I got this email this past, I've gotten an email several times over the last couple of weeks and it goes like this. It's just a line in a blog and it says, I love you, but I love myself more. What he's getting at, I never did read the whole blog entry, but what he's getting at is the fact that the flesh always loves ourselves more than we love others. That's what the flesh is. But God found a way to deliver us from the condemnation that comes through the flesh. And that is he sent Jesus to take our place. 
And so we read the Gospels, and what do we see? We see that Jesus of Nazareth lived a life of total, absolute, glorious obedience to the Father. Now, that should be enough. We read that, and we see how well it turned out. This is, this is how to have a good life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. Obey his commandments. It's always the best. That's why when we look in the book of Mark, when it talks about the, the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? What are the commandments? And the guy gives him, spits the commandments back to him. In fact, tells him the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, and Jesus says, you, you spoke well. And he says, I've done that since I was a child. Liar. You didn't do that. And none of us have. I get a kick out of this approach to evangelism uh, Ray Comfort has, the way of the master, where one of the questions he will ask to convince them they're a sinner, have you ever stolen a pencil? Oh, let me tell you, you've done something far, far worse than that. I would think if God was sending me to hell because I stole a pencil, there's something wrong with God. But I've done something much worse than that. I haven't loved him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, or loved my neighbor as myself. See, that's, and that's what Jesus was trying to get this man to understand. And then he commanded him. He commanded him. He said, you lack one thing, now this is what you have to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Now, even every time I go through this, I, I'm sure that all of us, we hear that and we say, man, that'd be really tough, wouldn't it? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow Jesus. That's because we have fried brains. Can you imagine the glory of following Jesus? And when Jesus told this to this rich young ruler, he actually, that, the way he would do that was by actually coming and becoming one of his disciples and being with him all the time. What he's calling you to do to come and follow him is to walk with him, is to be a follower of Jesus, to believe upon him and live your life for him. And then it says, but the man was quite sad because he was so rich. Have you ever been sad because you're so rich? Maybe we should, I don't know. But he was so sad. But the other thing in that text in Mark is, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Wait a minute, this is an unbeliever. This is a guy who rejects Christ. And Jesus said, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Isn't that amazing? And you see, what Jesus came into the world to do was to show us up close and personal who God really is. And this is who he is. In fact, I, in, in my life, it just so happened in my life that that's where I saw God manifest was in the life of my mom, watching her walk with Christ, watching her, the way she cared for people, knowing she, was, she wasn't perfect and she could still be petty, like when she didn't give me what I wanted, but she loved Christ. That was the greatest impression I had, that she loved Christ. And this is why in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God demonstrates his love for us in that, what? 
we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. We were like the rich young ruler. We were in that state. And Christ died for us. That sentence only makes sense if somehow God's fully and personally involved in the death of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the Bible says, isn't it? I, I know all of you have memorized Isaiah 53.10. If I started it, Nancy could complete it. It pleased the Father to crush him if he would give his, himself as a sin offering. He would see his seed and be satisfied. You know what that means? He would see his seed. It means he would see you, all of you who believed on him, and he would be satisfied. He would say, it was worth it. Laying down my life was worth it. Now, most of the time, in fact, about 95% of the time when it talks about God's, the motive of Jesus in going to the cross, about 95% of the time it says it was because of his love for the Father. But there's one passage in the book of Revelation, I think it's in the first chapter, where it says that Jesus loved us and gave his life for us. He loved us and gave his life for us. I want you to know, this is the most amazing truth that I, I wish the Holy Spirit would drive home to your heart until you just couldn't hardly stand it. You might say something like, praise the Lord or something. If he would drive this truth home to your heart. That God loved you and he sent his son into the world to redeem you, to die for you, so that you could be brought into the family of God. That's an amazing reality, isn't it? So he was pleased to crush him. Part of the point of Philippians 2 is a point not so much about Jesus, but about God the Father himself. And that is, the cross is not something that God does not willingly or only because he can't think of a better way cause to come to pass. In other words, God wanted to save you in this way by sending his son, who is just like him, who has the same nature as him. This is the heart of the gospel. The news that the one true God consists through and through with self-giving love. Isn't it neat to be around people like that? That are close to that? Self-giving love? That's what God did. That's John 3.16, by the way. For God so loved the world. He loved the world so greatly that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this God, for him to become human and to die for sinners, isn't some category mistake, isn't something like, well, this is so complicating, I don't get it. Sometimes it is hard for people to, to, to uh, think about this, consider it, and have peace in their mind about it. That God sent his son of the world to die for sinners so that he could save them. At the very climax of Isaiah 40 through 55 is this strange portrait of the servant of Jehovah, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who does for Israel and the world what only God himself can do for the world. 
And so when we come to Isaiah 53 and we see God being pleased to crush his son, what a way to put it, isn't it? But when you read the account of what happened to Jesus or when you see a depiction of it in a video or something, what, what, what Jesus was willing to do to save us is overwhelming. And it's not fiction. It's reality. It strains our categories to a breaking point and beyond when we think about this, that God himself comes to the world through his son. And his son comes so close that he becomes one of us. He experiences in life what we experience all the time. And, and this is the kind of God we serve. And it's the kind of God that only knows how, is the only one who knows how to produce in the heart of a mother a love for her children that is demanded of her by the very nature of motherhood. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Peter encourages us, he says, uh, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, the mighty hand of God is what it sounds like. It's, it's tough under there. Being under the mighty hand of God means you're going through trouble and hardship, and you can't figure out what in the world is God doing? And Peter, of all people, you know his life. You know what he did. He denied Jesus three times. He resisted all the time over and over again. And yet he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. He was an expert on that. That's what he did. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, and God exalted him. He brought him up. He lifted him up, and he was restored. And God even gave him this assignment of writing the, the, the letters of First and Second Peter that you get so much joy out of. He's the one who said, he's writing to people who had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of being persecuted as Christians. They're mostly, not all Jews, Jews and Gentiles, but they're scattered everywhere. They're running from the persecution. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Asia Minor, Bithynia, all over the place. And he says to them, wait, listen, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. In other words, put yourself in his hands in this, this trial. Yeah, but he's the one who's doing it. He's the one who's allowing it to happen. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. What is that doing? That's trusting his love for you more than trusting your ability to escape. It's putting your confidence in the love of God. Why in the world would we ever have confidence in God's love for us? We know ourselves. We know how flawed we are. We know how far short we've come from what we ought to be. And yet Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And they're in bad circumstances. They're being persecuted. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. At the right time, at the perfect timing, he's going to lift you up. That's what he did for Peter. And that's why Peter uh, can speak as an expert on this because he experienced it. If you've never read that passage uh, about uh, Peter being restored, you know, Jesus kept asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And uh, Peter's getting irritated because he kept asking him, do you love me? Well, he had denied him three times, and so Jesus asked him three times. 
do you love me? And he, and he said, if you love me, then feed my lambs, feed my sheep, care for my lambs. And Peter discovered that even though he had been a total jerk, he had been an unfaithful disciple in a massive way, much greater than your unfaithfulness and my unfaithfulness. And yet Jesus restored him. Because after all, he purchased him by his own blood. What do you own that's really precious to you? What is really something that you own that, that you've come to possess as a possession now in your life that is just so precious to you that you couldn't stand giving it up? Nobody wants to answer, do they? <laughs> You are his precious possession. That is hard to believe. I mean, he's the, he's the one, God is the one who created the universe. And yet he says that you are his precious possession. He has given you, he has graced you everything in your life. He's given it as a manifestation of his grace. In fact, in Romans 5, it says you're in sphered in grace. That's where you are. You're in, in, this, in this sphere of grace and all of God's dealings with you are Grace manifestations of his grace. Grace means more than unmerited favor. It means God giving himself to you freely. He freely gives himself to you. And he says, that's where you're at. That's the atmosphere in which you live now. Now, you don't believe it most of the time. This is why we have trouble. We just, we come to the end of ourselves. Why, if God really loved me, then why would he allow this? I'm sure you've never said that, have you? If God really loves me, why did he allow this? I was thinking about that this week. I was uh, reading this stuff on, um, about ministry to dis- disabled that churches and different churches have done. And I was at, uh, in Southern California one time when Johnny Erickson was going to Grace Community Church. And they had a ministry to the disabled. Well, the aisles were filled with people in wheelchairs. It's a huge church. If you've never been into this, this church building, it's massive. I think it seats about 4,000 people. And all the aisles had people in wheelchairs up and down the aisles. And they were moaning and groaning and making noises. I got to thinking about this because it's the first time in months and months, maybe years, that I began to think, you know, God, I can see you using that building over there on that seven acres for your glory. And it had to do with the fact that it would be very difficult for us to, to, to serve people, really needy people, in our present setting. But it would be just like God, wouldn't it, to empower us to serve people who had needs that we could not meet, but we have a God who can meet them. And therefore, we could love them, manifest the love of Christ to them. God wants to use you as a conduit through which he pours out his grace into people's lives. This is what this text, when it talks about Jesus, here was Jesus, the Lord of glory, who didn't think being in the image or being equal with God a thing to to seize and use for his own benefit. And so if, if in order to meet our need, if he needed to lay aside his glory, that's what he would do and that's what he did. He was born in the most humble of circumstances, 
like none of you have been born like this. He was born into an animal shelter. If anybody was born in an animal shelter, it's okay to let me know. But it's probably very rare. He was born in an animal shelter. He was born to a, a young lady that got pregnant before she got married supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. But she was probably 16 years old. He, got, he, he came into this world in the most humble of circumstances. He humbled, humbled himself. And he came among us and he took on the role of a servant, a slave in order to save you. Who was that dying on the cross? Well, get this. The Romans only crucified slaves and aliens. Jesus was crucified for you. He was willing to drink the cup of God's judgment for you. I can't explain all that, the mechanics of that, and give you some formula. I can tell you it's a mind-boggling reality and truth that this is the measure of his love for you. This is a measure of the son's love for the father and the son's love for you. You mean the son loves me in some way comparable to his love for the father? That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. And I want to encourage you moms today. This is Mother's Day, I know. In our, we have, they've got a new, um, what would you call it? A, a, a new... Uh, way of celebrating Mother's Day in our family. It's been going on for, this is the third year. All the mothers in our family are going out together and leaving the rest of us home. <laughs> They're going out to dinner. And you can tell when they come home, they've had the greatest time they've ever had. And we're home hungry and abandoned. <laughs> but that's our sacrifice for Mother's Day. But I want, you, I want to convince your mothers that this is the God that you need. The God that has this kind of love. And he can empower you to love the undeserving. I can't help it. I'm sitting there looking at Cherie and her three boys. And I can see what you have loved all these years. It's been amazing. And I can see how they've loved you. Because somehow their eyes were opened to what God was using in your life. Using to be a conduit. He used you to be a conduit of his love to them. What a wonderful, wonderful thing it is, Mother's Day. It's a day that we can honor uh, mothers and say to you, look to Jesus. He will empower you. He'll enable you. He will motivate you to love like only he can. Ryan's going to come back up, and we're going to sing one more song. Let me pray. Our Father, thank you so much for uh, today. For We thank you for our mothers and, and the way that you've used them in our lives. We are grateful. We're grateful for the grace of God that flowed through them into our lives. And so now we pray that you would bless their lives today. Let them know that they are loved deeply and profoundly and appreciated. We pray, Father, that you'd take this this glorious truth in, in Philippians 2 and drive it home to our hearts. We have a Savior who is beyond our ability to describe. We just want, want to, to know him. We want to see him. We want to experience him every day. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.